0: Craig Fairman lives in Bloomington, Indiana with his wife and two young children. His first appearance on C-SPAN was to discuss his book, Author-in-Chief. This was the untold stories of U.S. presidents and books that they'd written. Mr. Fairman has subsequently searched for what he calls the best presidential writing. It's now in book form and is talked about in this conversation recorded in January 2021. Craig Fairman, the best presidential writing is what?
1: Well, I think that's a that's a really good question, and it's the question I had to think of a lot when I was trying to decide what books are and to excerpt and what speeches to include. Um, so I really can't give a simple answer because it's not a simple book, but I think sometimes the best presidential writing is the most personal, where a president like Calvin Coolidge really reveals the, the cost of being president and what he felt while he was in the White House. Sometimes the best presidential writing is is the most political, where a president is really defining his role and, and using words to expand and, and uh, define what a president can do. And sometimes the best presidential writing is, is, is all about the event. It's about, you know, 9-11 and and George W. Bush giving impromptu remarks at a a mosque, but really saying, you know, this is what America stands for. But this is also what America does not stand for in terms of religious exclusion. And so, you know, there can be all kinds of different situations where a president needs to talk. And I guess at the end of the day, the best for me was something that was memorable or or historically important or, or revealing or surprising.
0: John Quincy Adams was 53 years old. He was secretary of state. In your book, you quote from his diary, I want to read a little bit, literature has been the charm of my life, and could I have carved out my own fortunes to literature, uh, would my whole life have been devoted? Um, I, I have been a lawyer for bread and a statesman for the call of my country. In the practice of law, I never should have attained the highest eminence. For the one of natural and spontaneous eloquence, one, one little bit more, the operations of my mind are slow, my imagination sluggish, and my powers of extemporaneous speaking very inefficient, but I have much capacity for and love of labor, habits on the whole of industry and temperance, and a strong, almost innate passion for literary pursuits. Break that down.
1: Sure. Well, I think that's an example of something that's surprising. Because John Quincy Adams wasn't just a president. He was an important representative. He was an important diplomat. There are few Americans who could boast a political career as impressive as his. And yet, when he was reflecting on it and being honest in the pages of his diary, what he said was, you know, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I didn't get to live and pursue the life I wanted, which was a literary life. And Adams could be hard on himself. That's that's another example I think of best presidential writing. When are our presidents being most honest? And and you can hear in that passage how candid Adams would be in diagnosing his own shortcomings and his own failings. And he was just somebody who, from the very uh, from his youth, he cared a lot about books. He cared a lot about literature. Books were were always around him because his parents John and Abigail cared about books he tells wonderful stories in his diary of seeing his parents read uh, Paradise Lost John Milton's epic poem and John Quincy tries to read it himself as a young child and he he just can't understand it he, he he literally can't understand it he's like why do my parents care so much about this 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 doesn't make sense but as he you know spent his life and as he realized that his mind had a kind of literary inclination he started to appreciate Milton and Shakespeare and so many other writers and he He really wanted to try to produce something like that for America, because when he was a diplomat and when he was a president, America was not an international behemoth. America was was kind of a, an underdog on the, on the international scale. And so one way that Europe would dismiss America was to say, well, they haven't produced any writers, have they? They haven't produced any great works of literature. And so John Quincy Adams wanted to, to do that. And, and he tried. It wasn't for lack of trying. He would, you know, when he was having official portraits painted, he would be writing poetry. When he would go on long walks through Washington, in his mind, he would be composing new stanzas. So throughout his entire life, he tried to compose, you know, some kind of, epic poem, a kind of American paradise lost. He never could pull it off. His poetry, frankly, is a little bit hit or miss, but that passion was always still there. And to me, he did produce an American masterpiece, which is his diaries. And that's why I was so excited to excerpt some of those in this anthology, because if you read it, you see his honesty, you see his passion, and and you also understand a lot about politics, even if his eye was always wandering off to, to literary pursuits.
0: From 1845 until 1849, James Polk was president and you excerpt from his diary. What's, what's it like?
1: Well, it's, a, you know, it's not quite as good a John Quincy Adams' diary, perhaps, but it's still a really revealing document. And one thing I wanted this book to do is, is to not just reveal the best presidential writing, but to reveal the presidency itself. And Polk's diaries are really good at showing just what the day-to-day job of being a president in the 19th century was like. And honestly, it wasn't a very pleasant job, and it wasn't always a very important job. Polk spent a lot of his time sort of fending off people who were looking for patronage jobs, you know, looking for Polk to appoint them to comfy sinecures they could make lots of money and and have an easy easy time of it. And so Polk again and again in his diaries just complains, you know, today I had a senator come up and and blast me and ask me for this or ask me for that job or put this person before me. It drove him nuts and and it drove him nuts how reflexive and, and cynical and selfish it was. One senator said, you know, I've got this person in my state who really could use a good job. Will you put them up for it? Polk begrudgingly agreed. And then later that senator attacked Polk in public. Who is this person? Like, this person isn't qualified. And Polk is thinking, well, you asked me to do it as a favor. And so it's fascinating when we think of the modern presidency, which is so powerful and so consuming and, and really sets the tone in Washington and in the world. It's fascinating to compare that to what the reality was for so much of American history, where you were really just dealing with people who, who wanted comfy jobs and would, would hassle you in the White House until they got it.
0: So far, we've talked about two diaries. Can you give any estimate on how many diaries uh, from how many presidents?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say at least half. But what's interesting too is that as the technology changes, the type of diary changes. So Nixon obviously made great use of audio recordings. Um, Jimmy Carter, when he was in the White House, um, would would. Talk into a recorder for at length, and, and he used had those uh, recordings turned into transcripts, which he then used those transcripts as kind of the, the basis for his presidential memoirs that he wrote. So there are lots of examples of presidents keeping diaries, but oftentimes it would be inconsistent too. George Washington kept a pretty terse diary at, at several points in his life, and I mean it would be terse. Like you know he would go out and buy the newest pamphlet by Thomas Jefferson and just write, you know, I bought this many copies for this amount of money, and that was a diary entry. But while president, he failed often even to keep up a diary like that because the, the job can be demanding. So uh, quite a few presidents kept diaries. Garfield is another surprising example uh, of someone who kept a really interesting diary. But I mean, my, my thought is always I wish more had because sometimes those diaries can be the most revealing documents of all.
0: Well, as you know, when James Polk left the White House, he died three months later. And uh, I'm looking at uh, your chapter on Calvin Coolidge, who when he left the White House was 56 years old. And then died just uh, you know less than four years later. But you focus on his autobiography. Why?
1: Well, I think it's such a it's one of the best autobiographies an American president has ever written, and, and we should all be thankful that that he got to finish it before he passed away. Now, now that might seem strange to people because a lot of people don't even know that Calvin Coolidge wrote an autobiography. But when it came out in 1929, it was it was an event. It was one of the books that everybody everywhere in America was talking about in the same way that, you know, the the whole nation was interested in Barack Obama's presidential memoirs coming out just a little bit ago. And the scene of Coolidge's book that really captured the nation's interest and I think also captures the appeal of Coolidge as a writer centered on Coolidge's son. Um, Coolidge's son was a teenager and he was playing tennis on the white house lawn and he developed a blister seems like a small injury you know today in the age of antibiotics but back then it actually got infected and ended up killing his healthy teenage son and coolidge writes so movingly in his autobiography about you know sitting there next to his son knowing that he coolidge was the most powerful person in the world at that point but he had no power to save his son who was dying right there in front of him and Americans knew that this had happened. You know, there had been radio broadcasts of the boys' funeral. It was something that the entire nation had grieved about. But to then have Coolidge sort of say, well, you know what happened in public. Here's what I was feeling in private – that was moving and, and and surprising, and it just captured everyone's interest and, 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 frankly, captured their hearts. And it did that because Coolidge was such a good writer. You know, he really rose as a politician because of his literary talents. Again, not something we would think about today when we think of Silent Cow, but he was a fantastic writer, and I include some of his speeches before his presidency and during his presidency, there's a speech where he welcomed Charles Lindbergh home that's a really interesting example of a president talking about an event. Um, but that autobiography, I feel like, was really. Coolidge's masterpiece, where he could talk about the personal side of being president in a way that sometimes our presidents aren't willing to to do. But Coolidge did. He revealed, you know, the the personal tragedies and the costs and the excitement and, and also talked about how a president should carry himself. And it's a wonderful book and it's been out of print for a long time. So I was thrilled to be able to excerpt it in this anthology
0: left the uh, White House after 1928 election but I want to read just a little bit here and get your reaction one of my most this is Calvin Coolidge one of my most pleasant memories will be the friendly relations which I have always had with the representatives of the press in Washington I shall always remember that at the conclusion of the first regular conference I held with them at the White House office they broke into hearty applause your reaction
1: well, that's, uh, that certainly is an example of how things were a little bit different. It was also an example of Coolidge's popularity and how, you know, the press was changing. Coolidge, we think of Roosevelt being the radio president, and of course he was, but Coolidge was the first president to really use the radio to broadcast his speeches and, and reach out to the people. So things hadn't quite, there, there wasn't quite that antagonism yet. But also, I think we have to give Coolidge credit that he wasn't an antagonistic politician. He talks a little bit later in, in those passages talking about, you know, the president's job isn't to divide and incite anger a president's words are always analyzed and always paid attention to you know a big change from when polk was president to when coolidge was president but coolidge believed that a president had a had a duty to to not divide to not to not make people angry and and because he adhered to that duty and and worked hard to not you know incite um Arguments between the press or between the people. Um, he didn't abandon his political ideals, but he also wasn't, you know, a bomb thrower. I think the press respected him, and, and especially in that early period of this relationship between the presidency and the press, um, they were able to get along, and, and Coolidge appreciated that and worked to maintain that.
0: After Franklin Delano Roosevelt ran for vice president, uh, he was 43 years old back in 1925, and you picked a review that uh, he wrote about a novel. Tell us. Well, I think it's a really interesting
1: document, first of all, because it shows how much Roosevelt knew about history and cared about history. And that's that's not just an FDR thing. So many of our presidents cared about history. And I, if I could find an excerpt where they were sort of talking about another president or reflecting on how history works or, or how people can shape history, I always love to include those because it's just, it, it's almost a job requirement that presidents are fans of history, Think in terms of history. Think in terms of historical analogies. And it's interesting to see Roosevelt do that. But what makes that review really interesting is that often presidents will reflect on history after they've been president and sort of say, you know, I was looking at this example or thinking about this thing. But this is, as you said, this is an FDR kind of on the outs, but also hoping to be on the rise. He had had some political failures, but he was still passionate about politics and wanted to get back in. And so he analyzed, and the book was sort of about the divide between Hamilton and Jefferson. And Roosevelt wrote about that, but he wasn't just writing about you know the 18th century and the early 19th century. He was clearly thinking about the 20th century and the political debates then. Should America be more like a Hamilton style uh, of politics where there was a focus on rich elites and trying to to accommodate them or should it be more jeffersonian with a focus on regular people and what they wanted and you know you read the review you can see where roosevelt's passions lie and he talks about you know we have plenty of hamiltons running around right now in our politics but is there a jefferson is there somebody who can unite and bring together the interests of the regular people and stand up for regular americans is there a jefferson on the horizon and I think that's just such a fascinating question because the rest of Roosevelt's c- career clearly revealed that yes, there was, and and that Jefferson was the person who wrote the review. It was FDR who was able to channel that kind of um, you know populist politics and, and really defend and, and lift up the common people in the way that he saw Jefferson doing.
0: In, in the review, he and he's talking about uh, Claude Bowers is thrilling, as he says, Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, because you've had to do a lot of reading for this book, were you able to read that novel?
1: I, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a book of historical nonfiction, but yeah, I, I have read it. Bowers, is a he's a wonderful stylist and, and a wonderful writer, and, and he and Roosevelt sort of corresponded behind the scenes as well. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on Logistics Insights at Maersk.com insights.
0: Next president, Harry Truman, from his memoir, 1955, What Do You Remember?,
1: well, Truman's memoirs is two volumes, so there's a lot to choose from. But the the scene, I, it, it was a no-brainer for me. I had read the memoirs a couple years ago, and I knew immediately that what I wanted to include were two passages. One was an example of what we were just talking about, presidents talking about history, where Truman writes about you know how he first got history books as a child. His family didn't have a lot of money, but he relied on the local library and, and a book that his mother had bought him that he just read again and again. But he also relied on a high school teacher that really helped shape him and, and give him a love of history. And so I just think it's fascinating to think of a president, um, somebody who shaped so much of America in the 20th century, getting his start with a great high school history teacher and getting his start with a great public library. And so I wanted to include that. But the other and, and probably even more memorable passage is is what opens the book. Truman, you know, was a smart reader and writer himself. And so with the help of the aides who were working on the book, he knew right where to start the book, which was when he learned that FDR was passing away and that he was going to become president. And so Truman does a great job of really slowing down and saying, you know, he was interact, here. He is interacting with Eleanor Roosevelt. Here he is calling his first cabinet meeting as president. What, you know, how surprised was he? What was he thinking about? What was he afraid about? And so he walks through that moment. And then after that cabinet meeting, um, one of his uh, aides pulls him aside and says, "You know, it's time for you to learn about the atomic bomb." And what an important moment—not uh, just for American history, but really for, the, for shaping the presidency, because that—that that atomic power really. Um, revolutionized and expanded what presidents could do and and what presidents could choose not to do. And so to see Truman, even as vice president, not knowing anything about it, and then all of a sudden realizing that this impossible job was even more demanding and impossible than he had realized, it's incredible to read that and and to feel like you're right there
0: in the room with him. As you point out from his memoir, uh, the story around when uh, President Truman found out um, that FDR had died Uh, There's an aside in the memoir, and I'll read it, and then you can fill in the blanks. This is Harry Truman talking. I recall wondering whether President Roosevelt himself had had any inkling of his own condition— The only indication I had ever had that he knew he was none too well was when he talked to me just before I set out on my campaign trip for the vice presidency in the fall of 1944. He asked me how I was going to travel, and I told him I intended to cover the country by airplane. Don't do that, please, he told me. Go by train. It is necessary that you take care of yourself. Explain that.
1: Well, Roosevelt was very good at, at keeping his health and his health problems quiet. Uh, even when we were talking about that early period when he was doing the the review of Jefferson and Hamilton, it wasn't long before he began to have the the problems that would would eventually lead him to have to spend so much time in a wheelchair. Even though he did a good job of, of obscuring that and not letting that uh, diminish his you know his reputation for political vigor, and so that you know that skill of his to be able to sort of keep people uh, not aware of of how. Uh, frail his health could be, you know, continued into the White House and even continued to those very close to him, like Truman. And so Roosevelt knew that that he was in a precarious spot. And, and I think just as much he knew that the country and the world was in a precarious spot. You know, World War II was was still raging. And obviously, Roosevelt knew that the atomic bomb could, could change everything. And so for that reason, you know, the vice president is, is not always as an important post. But Roosevelt knew that because of his health, his vice president was an important post. And I think he was trying to, uh, you know, protect Truman and and through that to protect the country. And it, it turned out to be a precedent uh, desire on Roosevelt's part.
0: On your chapter on Dwight Eisenhower, you go to a speech that he gave before the American Society of Newspaper Editors, April the 16th, 1953. Why did they call that Uh, Among other things, they call it the chance for peace speech, but also the cross of iron speech.
1: Well, uh, Eisenhower was making a historical allusion talking about different crosses and and the iron cross, and he was also calling for a a chance for peace. It was a chance... It was an important speech, not just because it was a president, I think, but because it was a former general as well. And so this was somebody who had, uh, you know, not just the powers of America at his disposal, but also had the the military reputation um, behind him as well. And what Eisenhower did is he sort of pivoted. He, He didn't talk as much about war. He talked about peace. He didn't talk as much about how to win war. He talked about what does winning a war cost? And I think that's a powerful idea for any president, but especially for Eisenhower, it was a surprising idea and an important idea. And he really explained in very concrete terms, you know, this is how much a bomber jet costs. This is how much a public school costs. And and he pointed out that in this escalating time of tension between the, the Soviet Union and America, you know, sort of the, the first the first flickers of the Cold War, at both sides we're going to keep building up but it even if war between them never materialized there were still going to be losers there were still going to be costs and it was going to be the people of of the world because of the focus on 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 war capability and not human flourishing
0: as you know uh, he talked in that speech about the difference between the United States and the Soviet Union and this is you know right after a couple of years after Soviet Union and the United States fought a war together and he has these precepts that he said were the United States precepts as to how to live uh, in the future. And he said, first, no people on earth can be held as a people to be an enemy, for all humanity shares the common hunger for peace and fellowship and justice. He had four points. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I want to jump to the third. Any nation's right to a form of government and an economic system of its own choosing is inalienable. Then he says on the fourth one, any nation's attempt to dictate to other nations their form of government is indefensible. How does that fit with what's happened to us in the last uh, 50, 60 years?
1: Well, it's it's a really good question, and it gets at, I think, one of the big themes of the book, which is how presidents view their foreign policy. Um, You know, famously, for so much of American history, it was the Monroe Doctrine, which James Monroe uttered in a speech, but was actually in large part written by John Quincy Adams behind the scenes. But that was this idea that you know America was was its own nation. It didn't want the interference of other people, and it didn't want to interfere with other people. It had its hemisphere. Europe and the old world had its hemisphere, and, and they shouldn't interact or or interfere with each other any more than is possible. That's obviously a big change from that, even to what Eisenhower is saying. Where Eisenhower is saying, you know, America can interfere if other nations are interfering with and trying to dictate the terms, or trying to push fascism or communism where uh, another nation might not necessarily want it. But then we have another perhaps even bigger change going forward where America starts focusing on, uh, you know, interfering and setting up and changing the the ground rules for for other nations, whether that was motivated by political interests or economic interests. Um, You know, that's something that historians have debated and will continue to debate. But in my book, I wanted to kind of give readers the primary text. So even if they would need to read more to get you know, into the the nuances of any particular presidential debate, they could see how much this was changing, how presidents and their idea of what an international America should be changed radically and, and how it changed in large part through presidential speeches. You know, what changed this was America's military might, but it was also different American presidents defining the, the goals of that might for themselves. And, and those speeches really constituted America's evolving uh, international
0: plow. On October the 26th, 1963, John F. Kennedy, one month before he was assassinated, went to Amherst College in Massachusetts to, uh, you know, commemorate the life of Robert Frost. What was your take on that particular speech?
1: Well, Kennedy, uh, through the help of people like Ted Sorensen, but also through Kennedy's own careful work, too, produced so many memorable speeches and, and so many great lines, um, a lot of them were, were focused on the kind of international ideas that we were just speaking about. But Kennedy also had a, a real passion for the arts and a real passion for history. And, and I wanted to include the Frost speech because of that, because in that speech, Kennedy um, doesn't just talk about, you know, one specific poet and, and how much that poet meant to him and, and to America as a whole. He talks about the importance of poets and what poets can do that politicians can't do. And this is actually kind of another surprising theme, whether it's John Quincy Adams wanting to be a poet, as we talked about, or Woodrow Wilson talking about, you know, what can poets do versus what can politicians do. This is something that American presidents have thought about a lot. You know, they, they might read history, but they also read fiction and poetry and, and believe that that kind of creative side can be important. And for Kennedy, I think the the poet could be kind of a critic, not just of other poets, but sort of a critic of American power and a critic of military might and a critic of critic of executive power. And so for him, somebody like Frost could help America sort of see its morals, its purpose in a way that when you were in Washington worried about the next war or the next opponent, you might lose sight of those kind of big defining ideals. That tension between a poet's view of the world and a president's view of the world uh, is an important one and, you know, can change over time. And I just think it's fascinating that so many presidents have worried about that. And I also think it's laudatory. We, we should listen to our poets and we should listen to our novelists. They have important things to say.
0: Here's a line in the speech, and I wonder how this, uh, fits in today's world. Uh, This again was back in nineteen sixty three. And in night this is John F. Kennedy. And in nineteen fifty eight, the lowest fifth of the families in the United States had four and a half percent of the total personal income. The highest fifth forty four and a half percent. What's happened over the years to that figure or those figures?
1: I don't have the specific figures off the top of my head, but I know that that divide that he was diagnosing has, has become much more stark um, and, and really accelerated you know, in the 80s and the 90s and, and even during the pandemic we're living through now. So. It's it's fascinating that Kennedy was so focused on this even more, Lyndon Johnson, with his desire for a great society and, and you know, the, the kind of uh, platform he was pushing for to, to help with inequality. It seemed like a pressing issue for them then, but, but it's only become, uh, you know, it's, it's gotten worse, not better. And it's something that politicians are still struggling with, whether it's stimulus checks or, or other approaches that can kind of help out all Americans and not just the, the
0: 1%. A lot of presidents didn't make your book. Are there presidents in the past that wrote absolutely nothing that you found interesting? Um,
1: I guess it it sort of gets back to that idea of what is best presidential writing. You know, somebody like James Buchanan was a terrible writer in addition to being a terrible president, so it was, you know, it was easy to, to exclude him. But it's still, there's still historical value in it. So those presidents maybe didn't write anything that was. Uh, worth including on its own, that you would want readers to just read by themselves. But you know, if you were writing a history of the Civil War, you would be remiss to not include some quotations from Buchanan and to read Buchanan's autobiography to sort of understand his worldview and and where he was coming from. But then, as that historian, you wanna you wanna find the telling phrases, summarize the rest, and not uh, not force readers to endure that. So I, I there were definitely presidents where they just either weren't great writers or also the presidency wasn't essential. central. You know, there are a lot of those 19th century presidents um, that, that weren't necessarily making history. Um, a British political scientist that Woodrow Wilson was a big fan of, James Bryce, he once, you know, said something along the lines of, well, who's ever heard of a Franklin Pierce? Who cares about him? And, you know, that's that's a, ch- a chance for, for a British political scientist to sh- or some cheap shots, and, and, you know, fair enough. But it's also true. The presidency just wasn't as important. It was, you know, as the Polk Diary show, more a, a, a managerial office. And so for those presidents, especially if they weren't, you know, Lincoln-level uh, writers, I thought, well, let's maybe not necessarily include them, and, and instead let's include multiple Eisenhower speeches or multiple Kennedy speeches and try to help readers draw those connections between, you know, FDR to Truman to Eisenhower and foreign policy. You mentioned I, I was just trying Go ahead. I was just going to say, I was just trying to get the right balance. And, and it, it, it's a little bit of an idiosyncratic book because, as we talked about, what does best mean? But I wanted readers to sort of feel like they were getting the, uh, the history of America, but told through the president's words themselves. And so for that reason, sometimes I focused more on, on presidents who made more history.
0: Did you ever, by chance, have a moment where you said that's the you read something? You said, that's the worst thing I've ever read from a president.
1: I hate to keep picking on James Buchanan but I think that his book is is an example of that. It's 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 a weird book anyway because it's written in the third person, you know, it's just a different time where books were written differently and Buchanan would often just include three or four pages from a letter, and then he would sort of, you know, offer a paragraph of his commentary and then include another letter, which I guess made sense in his time when, you know, it's not like you could Google a letter or, or, or easily get access to it. But still, it's a just the tone of that. It's Buchanan was a president who had created a disaster, and now wanted to blame everyone else. He couldn't believe that it was his fault that the Civil War was happening. Instead, it was politicians in the North or newspapers in the South. And so you read that, especially knowing what we know today. And it's just it's frustrating and angry to read a president who's just trying to shift blame at every
0: turn. You do include an excerpt from Donald Trump's book, um, The Art of the Deal. Uh, And it's well known that he didn't write a word of that, Why did you put it in?
1: Well, first of all, I think that... he didn't write it, but a lot of presidents didn't write it, uh, things that, that issued under their name. What mattered the most, I think, was that they issued under their name and also that they helped shape the product. George Washington's farewell address is, you know, is in the book, and, and it had to be in the book. It's American scripture, and it's, it's a, an address that if you go back and read it now, it will feel more relevant than, than maybe it even felt when Washington was leaving the presidency. Um, but still, James Madison played a huge role in shaping the ideas in there, and Alexander Hamilton, by any modern definition definition of of the term, wrote that speech. But if Alexander Hamilton had been like, you know, hey, I have a long speech, I hope that reflects on what America should be. Anybody interested? There would have been mild interest, but it wouldn't have become American scripture. What it needed for that was it needed to go out under the name of George Washington, and, and it needed to have the endorsement of George Washington. So I think it really matters that presidents are involved. I think that there's a difference between a ghostwriter who does most of the work and the president just kind of lazily signs off versus a, a real collaborative relationship like what Washington and Hamilton had. But Trump's first book had that kind of collaborative relationship. And it was an important book in terms of setting up his ideas and his celebrity. Before Art of the Deal came out, he was you know, a New York City figure. But that book was a huge bestseller, and he spent The better part of a year talking about it on cable tv so long before there was the twitter feed or the apprentice tv show or anything else that book lifted trump up and because of that it's it's an interesting book um, to to use to understand how he sees politics and to understand how he sees politicians some of the excerpts i included were his reactions on reagan and and carter and other presidents and so i do think that that book even today is a, a useful way to understand him
0: if you had a couple of hours free hours and you had to choose between writing or reading, which one would you take first?
1: I think I would choose reading. Um first of all, writing's a lot harder, <laughs> and reading's a lot more pleasurable, but also I'm th- there's a symbiotic relationship and, and the reading comes first. To me, I can't imagine ever trying to write something without doing a lot of reading first. and it you know it, it we're lucky that we have. A lot of great history and a lot of great historical figures that we can build on and we can hopefully offer something new a perspective that hasn't been seen or, or a, you know a collection that hasn't been um, appreciated but still what we're doing is sort of celebrating and, and trying to bring attention to great stuff that's come before us and you know i'd, I'd rather read that stuff than than write they're both important but it's uh, you can't beat sitting down with a good book i think
0: as people are listening to you talk about these different presidents How much of what you have in this book is available online?
1: Not that much of it. Um, There are some speeches, like Kennedy's Ask Not or FDR's Fear um, you know, The only thing to fear is fear itself that, of course, are, are widely available. Um, but there are, first of all, a lot of documents that, that are not easily available. Um, the Polk Diaries are a good example. Those that were put out in a, by a university press. Uh, you could go to a good research library and poke around in the four volumes and find you know, the most interesting passages, or you could just be thankful that I did all that work for you, and instead you can have the book itself. Um, there are also some documents that have never been printed. One of my favorite excerpts in the book is an Eisenhower essay where he sort of writes about autobiography and talks about, well, what is a good political autobiography? And Eisenhower's example that he analyzes is Ulysses S. Grant's very famous um, personal memoirs. So to see one president talk about another and to see one president talk about history, I think it's wonderful to read And, and that had never been published. It was I found it when I was working in the Eisenhower um, Presidential Library and in the archives. But I would say that the other thing I think that my book can do is it can just offer that, those kinds of themes and contexts. So if you read Washington's farewell address and then you jump to the Monroe docu- doctrine and you end up thinking about Eisenhower or George H.W. Bush and the, the war in the Middle East, you can see these kinds of connections and themes. And if you're just sort of haphazardly bouncing from one presidential speech to another online, there's not gonna be that curation. And so I talked about how much I like reading. What I really tried to do with this book was create a good reading experience for other people. I tried to put together the book I wish I could have read a few years ago, where it sort of says, you know, these are the big ideas in American history. These are the big presidents talking about those ideas. Now draw your own connections, find your own pleasures. Enjoy that, that journey through American history narrated by the presidents who made
0: it. You spent years doing your first book Author in Chief. When was the pub date on that and as you look back on it what was the best thing that um, happened? Author
1: in Chief came out in February of 2020.
0: And what so it was during the covid year and um what's, what ha- what was the best experience you had after that book came out?
1: Well, I felt very fortunate that I was able to do some events um, before the the pandemic kind of shut everything down. I had friends who had books come out later in the spring and they, were, they didn't get to, to meet readers and, and get to talk about their book in the way I did. But Probably my favorite thing was an event I did at the Carter Presidential Library. Um, the event was great. There was a great crowd, great questions, and, and Carter's a fascinating president to talk about. But what was special for me came a little bit before it. I got there a little bit early, you know, just to make sure my PowerPoint was working, all that stuff. And the, the person working at the Presidential Library said, you know, hey, you've got some time to kill. Do you want to check out the Presidential Library? And I was like, well, isn't it closed? And, you know, it was. The lights were dimmed. And he's like, yeah, but, you know, why not go through and look? So, I love going to presidential libraries and, and authors' homes and other things like that. It's always a great experience and a very humanizing experience. But to get to walk through the Carter Presidential Library and see all the exhibits by myself as the only person that was in there, it was, it was eerie in the best possible way. And it was, it, it, it was just magical. And I'll never forget getting to you know look at the replica of the Oval Office or getting to look at Carter's report cards when he was in high school, but getting to do that by myself, it It felt special, and and I really appreciated that librarian allowing me to do that.
0: Where does this come from? uh, I'm going to read a couple of sentences. We had a large battery-powered radio in the front room that we used sparingly and only at night. As we all sat around looking at it during the Amos and Andy the Fibber McGee, Fibber McGee and Molly, the Jack Benny, or Little Orphan Annie show. Uh, when its power failed, we would sometimes bring in the battery from the pickup truck to keep it playing for that special event.
1: I, is that from Carter's uh, Carter's book about his childhood during the Depression?
0: It, that, I didn't mean it to be a trick question. Yes, it is from uh, the book, As and you say it was one of the best of all of his dozen books, uh, An Hour Before Twilight. Why did you pick that?
1: Well, I just think it's really interesting to see. Uh, we've talked a lot about the the kind of big picture ideas and American foreign policy and president's view in history. But it's also interesting to think about presidents as regular people, whether it's Harry Truman going to his public library and checking out, you know, a book or two at a time, or whether it's Carter in the kind of pre WPA, pre rural electrification um, era, listening to the radio and experiencing American popular culture and, and being a regular person and. It's also just a wonderful book. I mean, Carter wrote a lot of books. Some of them are better than others, but this one is this one is the best because it's the most personal and he doesn't really talk about politics except he kind of can't help because talk about politics because there's a lot in that book about race and his father's the way his father viewed and treated black people in the south and and where Carter admired him and where Carter disagreed with him. And so it's just a really wonderful document that sort of talks about uh, Carter's personal life and and listening to the radio, but it also talks about, you know, a big boxing match and when some of the uh, African Americans who lived around them came to listen to that, they stayed outside the house and listened through the window and the way that those people had to carry themselves around um, a white person like Carter's father it's telling. It tells you a lot about American history. It tells you a lot about how things have changed and how they haven't changed enough. And, and Carter is really good at those kinds of personal moments and, and describing his history in a way that reflects much broader historical uh, events.
0: What's the difference between your first book, Author-in-Chief, and this book, which is called The Best Presidential Writing?
1: Well, I hope that they work in tandem. Um, but my first book is it has a lot of original research and really tries to, to define you know why did presidents write what did they write and how did it make a difference? What did they read? What were their personal relationships to books? How did those books change campaigns or make their careers? And there's a lot of stuff in there that even if you're a big history buff to begin with, you're going to find new stories. You're going to find out that Abraham Lincoln wrote a best-selling book that helped propel him to the White House in 1860. But then in the other book, I really tried to step back and let the presidents themselves do some of the explaining. So I, I hope that the first book kind of offers the context for why presidents write and, and why their writings can make such a big difference. And then in the second book, it's, well, let's just look at those writings themselves. And, you know, the second book touches on a lot grander themes, whether it's foreign policy or uh, you know inequality or race relations or all the different things that Americans and American presidents have worried about throughout time. And you can see presidents talking about it. But the first book is, I think, a little bit more humanizing and kind of goes behind the scenes and talks about the presidents as people. So I would hope that the books would work really well in tandem. I, I would maybe read Author-in-Chief first, but hopefully. Either book can help you see a new angle on history, because I know I learned a lot and and was able to really appreciate American history in a new way through both of them.
0: Some quick biographical information. Where are you right now? I am in my
1: house in Bloomington, Indiana.
0: Where are you from originally?
1: I am from a small town um, called Dillsboro, Indiana, in the southern part of Indiana. Maybe not close enough to call it Lincoln country, but, you know, if you know Lincoln's background, then that's, that's a good approximation of
0: mine. And where did you go to school?
1: I went to college at the University of Southern Indiana, which is a college in Evansville, Indiana, and then worked on a graduate, uh, a graduate program at Yale. Uh, never quite finished the Ph.D., but, but spent a few years there.
0: And besides writing, what else do you do for a living?
1: Um, I teach some. Um, I read a lot. As I said, the reading and writing are hard to extricate. And then I spend a lot of time chasing my kids around. They're two and four. And my wife is a book editor and, and works for, here from home in Indiana, too. So we kind of trade off the kids and the work and do uh, do as much of it as we can.
0: Last question. If you had to pick somebody in your life that was responsible for getting you interested in reading and writing, is there somebody?
1: Yeah, I think I would pick my parents. Um, we didn't really have uh, we had a, a tiny TV in our house growing up, a little black and white TV, um, because I think my parents wanted us to mostly care about books. And so I talked about Harry Truman um, going to the library. Well, I went to the library a lot, too. And so there was me and my three sisters and my mom or my dad would take us to the library and we would each get like one of those milk crates that we could fill full of books and eventually we sort of exhausted the the library resources in in the rural part of indiana where we were from and so my mom would put us in the minivan and drive us all the way to cincinnati and she sweet talked a librarian there into letting us have borrowing privileges so we could get even more books so i, I don't think i appreciated it at the time i just thought man we've been in this car for a long time when are we finally going to get to the library but looking back at it now i can see that my parents cared a lot about books in their personal life and they cared a lot about books for their kids And I think there's something really American about that, you know, whether it's our presidents or whether it's the people who like to read books about it. America has a long tradition of people who like to read and like to read for ideas and like to read for self-improvement. My parents were in that tradition, and, and I'm thankful that they made sure that I fit into that tradition, too.
0: Thank you, Craig Fairman.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at
0: c-span.org.